Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, another day, another mass shooting in America. I think there's been a couple of them this week at military bases, Pearl Harbor and the Navy Yard. Climate change protesters are walking out here in Portland and in Washington, D.C. It was 9 a.m. Georgetown University, they marched down to the World Bank and at Pennsylvania Avenue between 17th and 9th Street and surrounded the World Bank headquarters blocking intersections. The Washington Post has a good story about it. What do we want? Activists chanted climate justice. Yeah, when do we want it? Now. And if we don't get it, you make us late for work. <laughs> Shouted a passerby. Yeah, well, that's kind of the idea, you know. Some interesting stuff in the news. Rudy Giuliani is over in, I guess he's in Budapest in Hungary. I wonder if he's uh, looking for countries that don't have extradition treaties with the United States. Is he going to stay there? Might that be a good thing or a bad thing? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I just want to just bounce off a few of the news stories that I see. You know, you may want to comment on that. Things that I want to comment on. The number one story over at Axios. This is from Joe Biden's No Malarkey tour. I always wondered what malarkey was. That was a word that my grandfather used to use. You know, I know that contemporaneously it means you know BS, but. You know, the etiology of the word, I'm sure I could Google it. Anyhow, this is Mike Allen, the editor of Axios. He said, former Vice President Joe Biden told me during an Axios on HBO interview in Iowa that he has shaped the 2020 race, not liberals, not AOC. He said, speaking of the press, he said, it's just bad judgment. You all thought that what happened was the party moved extremely to the left after Hillary. AOC was the new party. Well, she's a bright, wonderful person, but where's the party? Come on, man. He goes on to say, Biden disagreed strongly with rivals who think that the Democratic Party is hungry for Medicare for all. A top priority of Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders said Biden, quote, the party's not there. The party's not there at all, end quote. So this seems to be the new dividing line, battle line, as it were, between the two largest factions of the Democratic Party, the progressive faction, the progressive caucus, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. There are no Republican members of it. They would be welcome because it's not a party-based caucus. It's an issues-based caucus. But, you know, we haven't had progressive Republicans since the 1970s. And 
or maybe the 1980s, they got all drained out. But this argument or debate or whatever the proper word is inside the Democratic Party right now is between apparently the Democrats who think that the system as it works right now is fine but needs some tweaking. In other words, let's you know strengthen Obamacare, Supreme Court decisions notwithstanding, and keep in place, or at least I think, to be fair to them, I think the argument would be, I was going to say, keep in place our current campaign financing system. I think really what they're saying, the Biden, Buttigieg type candidates are saying is that the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 ruled that owning a politician, that if a billionaire, this was the 76 decision, Buckley, and the 78 decision, a corporation, if a corporation wants to own a politician to the point where the politician's votes uh, typically correspond with the desires of that particular donor. And you see this with politicians who are owned by the Koch brothers. Now it's brother. For example, the so-called Freedom Caucus, I call them the Cokehead Caucus because they pretty much always vote in alignment with Charles Koch's organizations. That used to be the metric by which we would measure things like bribery, right? If a politician's taking a lot of money from somebody and then they start voting the way that that somebody wants, then, you know, that's prima facie evidence that they've been bribed. And in 76 and 78, well, in 76, with regard to billionaires, the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. That doesn't matter because giving money to a politician, regardless of what you get for it, is free speech. And in fact, they doubled down on that in the McDonald decision, just I believe it was the year before last, where Governor Bob McDonald, the former governor of Virginia, had taken over $100,000 in gifts. They were called bribes in the, you know, when he was prosecuted. And he was prosecuted and convicted of accepting bribes from a guy who owned a vitamin supplement company. And then Bob McDonald recorded ads for this guy and, and gave government contracts to this guy and just did all kinds of stuff to make this guy rich. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And at every level, every court up to the Supreme Court said, yeah, McDonald committed a crime. He took a bribe. And then the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that wasn't a bribe. That was simply he was honoring the First Amendment free speech rights of his donor. Right. You know, I pitched this series of books. Since the early 2000s, I've been trying to sell this to a publisher, this idea. And what got me started on this was back in the 80s or, or, or thereabouts, as I recall, maybe even the 70s, Noam Chomsky was kind of this obscure linguist that nobody really knew much about except for people who were into language. And he wrote these long, detailed, largely academic books about a whole bunch of really cool topics, including social justice and the economy and things like that. And a publishing company, I think I know the one, but I may be wrong, so I'm not going to name them, but a small publishing company got permission from him to go through these long, dense, three, 400-page books of his and basically excerpt them and publish them as books, as small books, little books of 35,000 words, more or less, you know, 150 pages thereabout in a small format, in a pocketbook format. And because they were so accessible, they were so easy to read, you could read them in, a, you know, in an afternoon or a, you know, on a weekend, and they had the meat of his arguments, they became very popular. And that's how, you know, one of the ways that Noam Chomsky became so well known. And so remembering that, I've been going to 
publishers hat in hand for years now saying, I'd like to do a series of 10 small books, 35,000 word books, 100 and, well, it turns out to be 195 pages in a pocketbook format, in a size that you can put in the outside pocket of a man's sports coat or easily fit in a, in a purse or whatever, you know, you can easily carry around with you and that you could read in the course of a weekend, a day or two, you know, a simple read. And I wanted to do them on guns and the Second Amendment. I wanted to do one on the Supreme Court. I wanted to do the one on the Republican War on Voting. I wanted to do one on how Monopoly has taken over America. I wanted to do one on the history of healthcare in the United States. I wanted to do one on the, the hidden history of the ruling class in America, the super rich oligarchy. And finally, I found a publisher, BK, who has published a number of my books in the past, who said, okay, cool, we'll do it. And my book on the Second Amendment just lays this out. And now, you know, we have this god-awful headline over at Common Dreams article pointing out that one in five federal judges now has been appointed by one man, Donald Trump. Because for years, Mitch McConnell refused to allow Barack Obama's nominees to even get a hearing in the Senate. And so the Senate has to confirm all judges. And so when Trump came into office, there was something like 150 open seats. I mean, it had gotten so bad that back five, six, seven years ago, John Roberts wrote a letter to Mitch McConnell saying, we've got a judicial emergency here. So anyhow, I laid it all out in the second in that series, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, how the Supreme Court has just nakedly betrayed our country. I'm so happy that BK is publishing this series in the spring. Next spring, we're going to have the one on uh, voting, on the war on voting. But just as an FYI, going back to Joe Biden and what he had to say, he's basically saying that the Democrats who are doing what the Supreme Court said you could do, who are, you know, because the Supreme Court said, okay, the new rules of the game are there are no functional campaign limits anymore. You can have a super PAC, you can have a PAC, and as long as they don't, you know, nakedly cooperate and collaborate with the campaign itself, and there's a million ways to unnakedly do it. You see the airlines doing it all the time. One airline raises their price 10 bucks on a route. Gee, the next one does this the next day. Nobody had a phone call. You can't prove collusion, but, you know, the effect is the same. Well, that happens in politics, too. And so what Biden is saying is that those Democrats who think that the Democratic Party should not surrender, should not lay down their money, should not abandon their big money donors, are actually at the core of the Democratic Party, in the heart of the Democratic Party. And then you've got people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are saying, no, that's the old way of doing things. We think that the core of the Democratic Party is and will be going forward small donors, individual donors. There's 300 plus million Americans out there. And Many of us like to give money to politicians in small amounts. And that's the future of the party. I'm curious what you think is the future of the Democratic Party in that context. Is Joe Biden right? Medicare for all and small dollar donations and things like that are really the fringe of the Democratic Party? Or are Sanders and Warren right? This is a genuine you know, battle that's being played out. It's being played out right in front of us. And we'll see which way it goes. So anyway, in fact, I read Ken Vogel's book yesterday on the on the Obama election. It was absolutely fascinating. Mike in Lamita, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? 
I just wanted to do an open letter to Jonathan Turley. I'm sure he listens to the show, explaining to him why the other four professors of constitutional law thought that a quid pro quo had been established by the evidence already on hand. Professor Turley, inhabiting that lofty world of uh, constitutional law, he may not understand enough about the world of petty crooks like Donald Trump, and I submit that he should be watching a program called COPS, where they send out film crews to go with real cops on real unscripted episodes. Right. And typical uh, occurrence would be that there's a complaint about an assault, and the caller knows the suspect and identifies him, and the cops go out looking for him, and they find him, and he says, I didn't hit nobody with no pool cue. And the cop replies, who said anything about a pool cue? <laughs> and that, that the statement denying the assault becomes evidence, even if the cop didn't record it, and even if the suspect right. doesn't repeat it at trial. Right. Because he said it, and hearsay or not, it's evidence. Right. Well, it's evidence I of think guilt. that similarly, yeah, Trump condemned himself out of his own mouth on the same day that the White House learned that the whistleblower complaint had belatedly gone to Congress. And he talked to Ambassador Sondland and said, Sondland asked him what he wanted. He said, I want nothing. I want nothing. No quid pro quo. Well, if you're not plotting a bribery and extortion plot, why would you even bring up a phrase like quid pro quo? I mean, honest people don't go around carrying that sort of phrase in the back of their head. Yeah, Americans don't typically speak in Latin. Outside sure, of lawyers so. and doctors. Well, even doctors don't know Latin anymore. Yeah. Priests in the Roman Catholic Church, maybe. There you go. Okay. So that's and, and everything else. Let's, let's just stipulate that, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fairly certain. Yeah. And if your buddy pushed a friend of mine named, or an acquaintance of mine named Zelensky off of the ferry boat, let's say your buddy's name is uh, Vladimir, just picked randomly, right. and Mr. Zelensky is out there thrashing around, and I'm standing there next to a life reserver, and he's saying, throw me the life reserver, and I say, yeah, that's that's quite an idea, but I want you to do us a favor first. I mean, that is extortion, yep. and you can dress it up any way you like, but that was the situation in the Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And what's so interesting, Rachel Maddow laid this out in a way that was just breathtaking on her program. I've never seen it so well organized, and I'm guessing that that show lives as an archive over on MSNBC's website or on YouTube or someplace. But it is so clear that Trump basically, with this new conspiracy theory that apparently originated with Russian intelligence, that it was Ukraine who hacked the elections, not Russia. What's shocking, Mike, is that 40% of Republicans right now believe that. They believe that Ukraine hacked the elections, not Russia. And it speaks to the power of Fox News and everything else, and it's just shocking. Mike, thanks for the call. You're, I'm not sure, they're not metaphors, analogies. Your stories really work. We'll be right back. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy 
this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash itmtrading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash itmtrading. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Mind uh, Blank, Cambridge Analytica and the Plot to Break America by Christopher Wiley. My life now looks, this is from the uh, Revelations chapter, next to the last chapter. My life now looks like that of a paranoid man, but after being assaulted in the street, receiving threats from rogue private security firms, having my hotel room broken into late at night as I was sleeping, and experiencing two hacking attempts on my email in the past 12 months, it's only sensible to be cautious. When I had my flat checked for security risks, the TV was deemed a risk, as it could be used to watch or listen to me without my ever knowing. As we dismantled it, I smiled at the irony of a TV that watches you. In the days leading up to the story's publication, when Facebook began sending me legal threats and escalated my case up to its deputy general counsel and vice president, my lawyers realized that the company saw my whistleblowing as a major threat to its business. Having experience on other hacking cases, my lawyers knew what companies backed into a corner were willing to do. But Facebook was different. They did not need to hack me. They could simply track me everywhere because of the apps on my phone, where I was, who my contacts were, who I was meeting. I disposed of my phone, and my lawyers bought new clean phones that have never touched Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp. The terms and conditions of Facebook's mobile app ask for microphone and camera access. Although the company is at pains to deny pulling user audio data for targeted advertising, there is nonetheless a technical permission sitting on our phones that allows access to audio capabilities. And I was not an average user. I was the company's biggest reputational threat at the time. At least in theory, audio could be activated, and my lawyers were concerned that the company could listen in on my conversations with them or with the police. Facebook already had access to my photos and my camera, which put them in a position to not just listen to me, but also to see where I was. Even if I was alone in the bathroom taking a shower, I wasn't ever really alone. If my phone was there, so was Facebook. There was no escape. But getting rid of my phone wasn't going to be enough. My mom, dad, and sisters all had to remove Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp from their phones for the same reason. But Facebook also knew who all my friends were. They knew where they liked to go out, what we wrote about in messages, and they knew where we all lived. Even hanging out with my friends became a risk, as Facebook had access to their phones. If a friend took a photo, Facebook could access it, and in facial recognition, recognition algorithms could, at least in theory, detect my face in the photos sitting on other people's phones, even if they were strangers to me. As I was getting rid of my old electronics, my friends joked that it was as if I was exorcising the demons inside the machines, and one friend even brought over some sage to burn, just in case. A funny gesture, of course, but in a way it really was an exorcism. We now live in a world where there are invisible spirits made of code and data that have the power to watch us, listen to us, and think about us. And I wanted these specters gone from my life. On March 16, 2018, a day before The Guardian and The New York Times published my story, Facebook announced that it was banning me, not only from Facebook, but also Instagram. Facebook had refused to ban white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other armies of hate, but it had chosen to ban me. 
The company demanded that I hand over my phone and personal computer and said that the only way for me to be reinstated was, in effect, to give them the same information I was providing the authorities. Facebook behaved as if it were a nation state rather than a company. The firm did not seem to understand that I was not the subject of investigation. They were. My lawyers advised me to refuse their demands so as not to interfere with a lawful police and regulatory investigation. Later, when I was working with the authorities, the ban made it far more difficult to hand over evidence that was sitting on my Facebook account, and the investigation into what happened during the Brexit referendum suffered as a result. They say you appreciate something only when it's gone, and it was only when I was erased from Facebook that I truly realized how frequently my life touched their platform. Several of my phone's apps stopped working, a dating app, a taxi app, a messaging app, because they used Facebook authentication. Subscriptions and accounts I had on websites failed for the same reason. People often talk about a dualism, the, the cyber world and our real lives. But after having most of my digital identity confiscated, I can tell you that they are not separate. When you are erased from social media, you lose touch with people. I stopped getting invited to parties, not intentionally, but because those invites also happened on Facebook or were posted on Instagram. Friends who did not have my new phone number found it nearly impossible to get a hold of me, except for trying to send an email to my lawyers. When I got through the thick of the whistleblowing, it would only be in coincidental encounters at clubs or bars that I would make contact with people I had not seen in months. And now when guys on dating apps ask to check out my Instagram profile, it starts an awkward explanation of how I was banned and that I'm not catfishing, I promise. It's as if my identity has been confiscated and people no longer believe I am who I say I am. Sometimes I get recognized as that guy and people worry that someone might start watching them if they decide to meet me. I always tell them that they needn't worry because these companies are already tracking them 24-7. This ban was nothing more than a dick move by Facebook and it felt like trolling by frightened bullies. For me, it created at most an annoying personal hassle and was not nearly as consequential to my life as the kinds of retaliation that other whistleblowers have experienced, not to mention the degree of damage to modern society that the, pro that the platform has already aided and abetted. But it showed me just how integral my online identity had become to, to so many facets of my life. The book by Christopher Wiley. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? A lot of people don't know that last summer, July of 2018, 11 of our senators went to Russia to discuss these problems we were having with the rumors of the election. It wasn't just July, and it was July 4th. July 4th. Ironically. And one of them was my senator, Shelby, from Alabama, and then there was Steve Daines from Montana, and John Hoven from North Dakota, and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. John Kennedy from Louisiana was one of them, and hmm. Jerry Moran from Kansas, and Thune from South Dakota. I can't remember them all. But these people went over there, these senators went over there, to discuss, you know, making relationships with Russia much better. And I find myself wondering, are these people going to interfere with the impeachment because they have their own connections to Russia? And once Trump's tax returns are released and we have access to them, are we going to find that he actually owes Russia money? a great deal of it, and he has owed it for five years, ten years, or even twenty, and has Trump failed to register as an agent for Russia? 
you know, if you work mm. for a foreign country, you're supposed to register. And has he committed treason or anything else with this money and has it been obeying Russia as president? And how long will it take before we get any answers for this, particularly if we have our own senators who probably are just as guilty covering this stuff up? Yeah, all very, very good questions. And this is the kind of stuff that typically you would expect Congress to investigate and the Justice Department. And, and they're I, not doing it. No, they're not. They're, and I'm surprised that there haven't been, you know, frankly, like lawsuits from independent groups about, you know, the Foreign Registration Act. I don't know. We'll see. Norma, I, I have no easy answers to any of that, but you raise the, you know, some very, very important questions. Thank you very much. Robin in Belhaven, North Carolina. Hey, Robin, what's up? Establishment Democrats, I like to call them neoliberals. Me and you talked about this once before. You don't define it like I do in a lot of the alt news. We call them neoliberals. These are the mm-hmm. Democrats that sold out to donors. Their arguments and their, their uh, journalists that, that support these neoliberals as Democrats. I was watching the PBS NewsHour on YouTube, a replay of it on uh, from the November 29th episode, and the duo Brooks and Shields, the two anchors mm-hmm. that talk on her show. It came up Medicare for All, and Shields said that the Democrats have been trying to push this since, you know, FDR, maybe even before, and, and in fact, he did say before. And every time, he says, the Democrats suffer in elections following it. In other words, they have to pay a big price. Right. Those were exact words. So, but in the same conversation earlier of that same episode, he said that the voters always go for somebody radical to whoever they had before. Yeah. Because I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry we're, we're out of time, Robin, but I, I think this is just, you know, industry propaganda, frankly. Clyde in Cambridge, Mass. Hey, Clyde, what's up? I'm thinking that the Democrats who run in for to replace Donald Trump, and even those who run in for various representatives, should be able to pin everything that Donald Trump is doing on those Republican senators that are backing him. Because if they were not backing him, he would not be able to be doing those things. And I think it is very simple. All they have to do is tag team those Republicans, such as Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, and those guys and back them into a corner because Donald Trump keeps going around telling the public that he has done more than any other president and I can't find one single thing that he has done to benefit the majority of people who are so-called middle class. All he has done was one law. One law has been passed and that was the tax law that gave millionaires and billionaires the little man tax dollar. Right. What else has he done? Ease regulations, and when you ease regulations, all you do is give people bad food and bad water to drink and whatnot. I heard the people in Bridgewater, Massachusetts this morning talking about the bad, dirty, bung water that they have to use. And we have a Republican governor here. Mm -hmm. And and someone referred to Flint, Michigan. And I'm saying this is the same bloody well thing that's going on here. No, we have a Republican governor in this place. All he did was ease regulations, and when you ease regulations, that's all you're going to get. Right, plus you lose jobs because the, the right. regulations, but if they require what, cleaning up the water, somebody has, has to have the job of the cleaning has, up the water. All the guy has done is reverse Obama policies, the climate spires agreement. Right, so what's Iran, your question, Clyde? I agree with you. Is there a question in there, or did you just no, want to make that I'm statement? I'm making a statement that they need to pin these things 
on the Republicans and have the Republicans running. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. And hopefully that's what the elections are going to be all about. Courtney in Ukiah, California. Hey, Courtney, what's up? Uh, hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm well. What's on your mind? So, well, one of the many issues I have with the impeachment hearings, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. You know, so much is kind of the underlying driving of a lot of the Republicans' defense and criticism of the Democrats is that this is totally, you know, nonbipartisan. And they're continually talking about the public polls, you know, half of America wants him impeached, half doesn't, so on and so forth. And, you know, if, if Joe Smo down the street commits a crime and his case ends up on the desk of the D.A., the DA doesn't go out and poll the community to find out if the community wants him to prosecute this crime. So, now, granted, I understand the, the politics of re-election for Congress and the Senate, but this is their mandate as their office through the Constitution to hold oversight over the executive branch and to make sure that he's not violating the Constitution, violating laws, violating his oath of office. So right. whether or not the country agrees with it, I mean, why should that even be driving it at this point? Because they have a mandate and a responsibility to to hold these proceedings, whether Trump supporters agree with it or not. You know what I mean? I do. I'm not sure what your point is. Well, I just I'm just asking, you know, your thoughts on why. Well, I guess why it's just politics. But, you know, yeah, why the Republicans are continuing to take Trump's side and obstruct. Is that, you know, I mean, I, it's even, that, you know, even Democrats relying on public opinion to kind of motivate them. Well, you right. know, if public support isn't behind this. Well, then we're not going to do it. Like your job is your job, whether you have public support in it or not. Well, there's there's you know? two sides to their job, Courtney. You know, in part, elected representatives are supposed to reflect the will of their electorate, of the people that they represent. On the other hand, they're also supposed to do what's legal and right and moral and, you know, in the best interests of our country. And sometimes those things come into conflict, particularly when you've got large media machines like Right Wing Hate Radio and Fox News that are constantly pushing people to believe things and support policies that at the end of the day are actually destructive to the planet, you know, like uh, denying global climate change or, or saying that it's okay for foreign governments to interfere in our elections. So, you know, I think a lot of legislators are, are walking a very fine line. But on the Republican side, I wrote an article about this. It's over at Salon.com right now, you know, asking the question, why is it that not a single Republican is broken with Trump uh, other than Justin Amash, who got kicked out of the party? And I think the simple answer is that the billionaires who Trump is one of and the, and the billionaires who own the Republican Party, who own all these individual politicians, thanks to a series of Supreme Court decisions that absolutely betrayed this country, those billionaires yeah. are getting what they want. They're getting their tax breaks. They're getting their deregulation. They're making more money on dirty air and water. You know, there are more poisons in the atmosphere. The chemical industry has been deregulated. Our public lands are being sold off to oil companies. The Clean Air Act is being rolled back. The CAFE standards, the automobile efficiency standards are being reduced. I mean, basically, the bottom line is that everything that the wealthy donors want, Trump is giving them. And that's why they're still supporting him. And they're the same people who own these Republican members of Congress. And until that yeah. changes, nothing's going to change. This is why campaign finance reform, while it sounds, you know, kind of weird and academic and out there, campaign finance reform, actually overturning these Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, is the, that's the cancer at the core of everything. Courtney, thank you for the call. It's an important question. Thank you very much. 
The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again. Family, friends, and everything so conveniently documented in video and photographs capturing every laugh and smile and under-eye bag. Under-eye bag? Wrinkles? Crow's feet? Yes, those telltale signs of aging. Who wants those in their holiday cards? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderma, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw it. Now I don't have to imagine it anymore. People look just like themselves, only younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to face that judgmental family member. We all know who I'm talking about. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it, unless, of course, you tell them. Get Plexiderm's holiday promotion. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe, and a lot of these are you know, other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So this is from chapter five, page 47, titled Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies of successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, you have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. 
He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Tom Hartman here. Check out my new weekly podcast, The Science Revolution. On this week's podcast, ADHD, are you a hunter in a farmer's world? Look out! Dr. Brian Strauss is here on the rising sea levels and those in the path, and there's more. You can find it now wherever fine podcasts are available, and it's free. More info at TomHartman.com or over on our Facebook page. It's 34 minutes past the hour. It's Anything Goes Friday here on the Tom Hartman Program. Brian in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind? Well, I think we need a anti-war movement quickly. This morning on uh, TV, I heard that Trump is apparently going to send another four to 7,000 to the Middle East, and he's pulled U.S. troops 
from Syria and northern Syria, where the uh, Russian and Turkish uh, troops are patrolling. And he says he sent them into Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis are paying the U.S. government billions for this, and they don't say why, whether it's uprisings in Saudi Arabia or uh, getting prepared with Europeans, nations, for a war with Iran. I saw Pompeo and Netanyahu, that fascist, a meeting in Portugal, and that has that's something up there. And I think Trump is just like the last Democratic uh, president we had. I'm a Democratic socialist like Bernie Sanders and AOC, but I think just like the last Democratic president who wanted unlimited bombings of Pakistan along with that George W. Bush, and I think we're heading for another resource war, which will lead directly to a nuclear war. We don't, the U.S. government does we don't spend $1.8 trillion on weapons of destruction for no reason. They deserve, they desire to use them, and uh, they're like children with toys, and I think they intend to. And we got to have an anti-war movement quick, or I think going to lead to uh, annihilation. Yeah. Also, Iraqi, their governor, whatever they got there for a government, closed off the southern border with Iran. In the south of Iran is where most of the oil is for Iran. So there's something going on here. Yeah, and what's, what's going on is that Iran has functionally taken over much of Iraq. And in fact, there have been reports that they've been moving military into Iraq. I have a different uh, point of view on that. I think these uprisings in Iraq, most of them, from what I've uh, the reports I've heard, are young people. In, uh, oh, they young absolutely Iraqis are. No, there's 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 a, want a there's, new constitution. Yeah, no, they there's a, there's a massive there's a massive anti-corruption uprising going on in Iraq. You're absolutely right, Brian. That said, though, basically when we took down the Iraqi government, the majority of Iraq are Shiites. The Sunnis were represented by Saddam Hussein. We basically turned. Iraq back into a Shiite government. The very first business to open in Baghdad was the Bank of Iran. And so, uh, you know, there's a real problem there. And then Iran has an alliance with Russia, and we have an alliance with Saudi Arabia. It's turning into a Shia Sunni thing. We've also apparently, we're withholding aid to Lebanon. There's apparently some aid to Ukraine that has still not gone out. I share your concern that we could be looking at World War III. I share that concern. I'm very concerned about it. And I don't think it's being taken seriously by enough people. Tulsi Gabbard has put it at the core of her presidential campaign. She's not getting a lot of traction, and she does have some very much out of the mainstream, even out of the progressive mainstream opinions in some other areas where I, you know, I would, I would not vote for her in a primary. But she has put peace front and center, and I think that that's a that's something that needs to have more emphasis, frankly. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I wanted to go back to your uh, discussion yesterday about uh, access to education, free college, and the connection to innovation. Right. You were talking about yesterday, and there was an important factor that was left out of that. And we're talking about the free college movement was really, you know, kind of put out of business in the 1960s, but after that, I'm saying... When the GI Bill had expired, to, you mean? Well, yeah, well, in the... In the mm. But what I'm talking about is what we are missing right now is what we had in the 1960s with the, all the innovation that we had. We had a national... And that was the space program. Mm. And the this ties into what we talked about in terms of innovation. 
you talked about things like, well, for instance, the in, a good example, the popular example is the advent, it, advent of Velcro was all kinds of people added to solved problems that the space program needed from companies to individuals. Velcro was uh, invented by a little old lady who was a seamstress who um, saw, came up with the idea uh, of how to keep the astronauts from floating away in the space capsule. What they, she did was you put the hook of the Velcro on the bottom of their boots, and the loop is the carpeting on the floor right. of the space capsule. And that's the kind of thing that was, I mean, there are probably tens of thousands of examples of individuals and companies producing things in the mission of the space program, to, and this was innovation. And how, I want to tie that in with regulations. Is There couldn't be anything more regulated than putting a rocket in space. I mean, the environment is regulated. Everything is, is tightly regulated. And that's what led to the innovation. It's uh, what the Republicans seem to think. By the way, they don't have a, a mission. They had, the mission since Ronald Reagan for them has simply to been be make the, the wealthy more wealthy by cutting taxes. They don't have – and what they keep talking about for businesses, you need to cut regulations so that people will be, you know, there'll be more innovation. Well, that doesn't that doesn't promote innovation. If you can do anything, you're not solving any problems. No, it actually words, discourages innovation. Exactly, because you're it not having the status to solve, quo, and you don't have to solve any problems. Right. I just wanted to th- throw out another data point for you and and uh, get your riff on this. When I was in high school or junior high school. I remember a class where, I believe it was a history class, might have been something else, where basically what the teacher said was war produces innovation and went through how, you know, how World War I produced all kinds of innovation in aviation, which had, you know, just recently been developed. And, and what a great thing that was. World War II, all kinds of innovations in electronics and, and telecommunications and, and other things as a consequence of the war effort. And your point that the space program produced massive amounts of innovation. War is just another giant government project where everybody gets together and works toward a common goal, as was the space program. And it seems to me that the Green New Deal would accomplish all that without killing people like war does or doing something that has questionable value, like putting a man on the moon. What do you think? Correct. Correct. And yeah, and the reason, let's not talk about the war and focus on the destruction part of it, but the problems that, that, that need to be solved, the uh, logistical problems and so on, come up with innovation. And uh, the example I was just going to give, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine last night who was a, a, a chemistry professor of mine at Michigan State. We've been friends for, you know, 35 years now. And he just came up with a brand new thing, a new chemical property. How he came up with it was fooling around and here's what happened he said just as a matter of professional development his company decided well let's work with i'll just call it photoactive molecules so then he started well how to get some and he started calling the supplier and he said no you can't get any of that stuff you, you can't get any and i said you can't get any i said well can you make your own he said no it's highly dangerous to make and the reason it's in short supply is because it's very dangerous, so not much is made, and there aren't very many companies who make it, so the people who need it, it's, uh, the market is at very short supply. But the supplier told them, you know, you can use this old molecule, it's a, it was a first-generation photo activator from the 60s, nobody uses that, you could probably get hold of some of that. It's not very effective like the new ones are, you know, you can get some. So he got some, and then he discovered a molecule to make it work more than three times as effective. Right. 
Yeah, your phone. Because your he phone. had a problem. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Innovation is really, really vital stuff, and you know, need is the mother of all invention, or whatever the old cliche was. But necessity, yeah. yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, necessity, and we yeah, don't. If, if we don't have a national mission that creates these kinds of necessities, like I said, innovation is only tied to profit. And the profit has no motivation other than right. greed. Right. Yeah. And There's no intrinsic connection between the profit motive and innovation when there are dozens of other ways to increase profits. Or right. increase so when Democrats, when Democrats argue against that, we need a candidate who has a national vision for a national mission, the way Franklin Roosevelt did, the way John Kennedy did. And, you know, the, other than the space program that Kennedy was his vision, remember we had the physical fitness program. Everybody was doing that, and we had a, a country that was physically fit. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. <laughs> Paul, thank yep. you very much yeah. for the call. Yeah. You always have thoughtful and insightful observations. I appreciate it. We've all heard of Casper. You know, the sleep company with the outrageously comfortable products at not-so-outrageous prices. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, sheets, and duvets, Casper transforms the way we sleep one snooze at a time. Haven't tried them yet? Then it's time to treat yourself to better sleep during their extended Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. Casper Mattress is an award-winning balance of comfort and support. Louise and I love our Casper Mattress. Four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. The zoned support system, unique to Casper, keeps your back aligned and cradles you with extra support. Casper is the perfect place to get all your holiday shopping done because, hey, let's be honest, everybody sleeps. And as always, Casper has free shipping and free returns. Plus, every Casper mattress comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Treat yourself with 10% off any purchase with a mattress today at Casper.com and use the code MONDAYS. Even though today's not Monday. That's Casper.com, code Mondays, to get 10% off any purchase with a mattress today. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms. James in Franklin, Tennessee. Hey, James, what's up? Uh, I just want to give the Bernie supporters a heads up. Okay. That Hillary, she's at again, she's on Howard Stone. That he's got a giant following. He was saying was she's waiting that Bernie was a Russian. She's done said that Tulsi Gabbard was, and then she also went on to say that Bernie didn't give her support when uh, she got elected, which he did. He gave her more support than she gave Obama, and she just added again. She's got a lot of power in that Democratic Party, and I'm telling you, the Democratic Party and Bernie—he's not going to probably get it. It's going to go to the super delegates again. And if they give it to somebody like Pete, do uh, Pete, what his name is, yeah, I was good now. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I'm told if I can't say it. I'll just be honest with you. It's got me, you know. But we we should fill the streets up with millions of people. Just fill them up and say we're not taking this no more. You know. Yeah. Enough is enough on that. Yeah, I get it, James, and I get your frustration. And, and I, you know, I heard the, the, the clip from Howard Stern's program where Hillary said that Bernie didn't support her. And actually, outside of Tim Kaine, Bernie gave more speeches to more people on behalf of Hillary Clinton than any other politician in America. And that's just a simple fact. And I was astonished to hear her say that. But I do think that you're right, that because the field is so large, Odds are it's going to go to a second ballot, and in the second ballot, the superdelegates will vote, 
And I'm guessing that it's not going to go to Pete Buttigieg. I'm guessing that if that happens, if that scenario happens, that we're going to end up with uh, Joe Biden. And then, particularly the way that Trump has been dirtying up Biden, that could be a disaster. But uh, who knows? I mean, yeah, on the other hand, Biden might might take it. He has, uh, you know, a, a lot of fans across America, certainly in the African-American community. So we'll see. I don't want to be too dire about all this, but I share your concerns. Absolutely share your concerns. Alexis in Brookline, Mass. Hey, Alexis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? What I am concerned about most with the election is, first of all, I don't think that Donald Trump is going to debate anybody except maybe doing some sort of thing on Fox, which I agree. Be as cheesy as anything. Yeah. And then my other concern is that let's say he loses the election, even in a landslide loses the election. I think that he will come up with some cruddy BS reason for the election to be. Oh, know, he'll say the machines were hacked. The election was stolen. Yes. The Democrats uh, were, were driving buses of, yes. of illegals around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's already rehearsing these lines. And I'm really concerned that he will do it in a way with the power of the presidency behind him, saying that, oh, yes. we have proof that this happened, right. you know, when he considered and Russia. And if Bill Barr is still attorney general, it could get even worse. Yep. So, yep. you know. And, we, and even if it goes to the Supreme Court, with how he stacked the Supreme Court now, I mean, I'm really concerned that no matter what we do, unless, you know, he's actually removed for his crime, that we're in a very bad situation. You're making a strong argument for impeachment, Alexis, and I agree with it. I completely agree with it. And I hope that the Democrats are thinking like this, because if he's not impeached, I mean, if he is impeached, then you got to deal with Mike Pence. I don't think Mike Pence would play quite as dirty as Trump, although, you know, I wouldn't put anything past Mike Pence either. But let us not be disheartened by these potential situations. Let us simply be vigilant. Alexis, thank you very much for the call. Anthony in St. Augustine, Florida. Hey, Anthony, what's up? Michael Bloomberg, is the reason why he's doing this is just an egotistical, narcissistic way to get himself attention. And he really doesn't care about just another billionaire thing that is just trying to get I disagree, Anthony. I, you know, I'm not a fan of Michael Bloomberg. I disagree with many of his, much of his politics or some of his politics. But I think what you may be saying would be more true of Tom Steyer. He believes his own PR and he's surrounded by yes men. His money would be much better spent investing in a media infrastructure, for example, which I've been trying to advocate to him for a long time. But I think in the case of Bloomberg, he's looking around and he's seen on the progressive side, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren really rising. And on on the conventional side, shall we say, on the mainline Democratic side, or corporate Democrats or whatever you want to call them. He was seeing Joe Biden just not do well in several debate appearances and seeming a little too much like grandpa. And uh, and he felt that Pete Buttigieg is going to have problems. And that's starting right now. You know, his, his work at McKinsey, which is a... Uh, a a pretty disreputable company is starting to come to light. I think Buttigieg is going to have some serious problems. And he was like, okay, who else can run the field? And so he's going to step in and hopes to step in and be the alternative to Biden. Time will tell whether that's the case. Terry in Seattle. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today? In observance of uh, Pearl Harbor date, we know that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, or at least most of us do. My question is this. After they bombed Pearl Harbor, why didn't they invade Oahu, where Pearl Harbor is located? Because they didn't have forces because they nearby. Did that, they, 
they didn't have forces nearby. No, they had, they had crippled our Navy, yes. But they didn't have forces in the Far East either. They didn't have forces in Hong Kong. Japan could get to Hong Kong with an hour flight. From Japan to Hawaii was, what, a 10-hour flight, something like that, back in the day? I mean, those planes only flew at about 180 knots. You know, maybe a little faster than that, but certainly nothing like they do today. And they didn't have the ships. They didn't have the, they, you know, it was, it was kind of an obscure question, but I think they were just making a statement. We had blockaded their oil supplies. We had blockaded the Straits of Malacca. FDR did that. And there are a lot of people who think that FDR did that intentionally to try to provoke Japan because he wanted to jump in the war against Germany. And that may well be the case. I don't know. But, the, you know, that's something the historians are still debating. It just keeps on coming, huh? And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your it, and share progressive media with your friends. Thanks. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Go ahead, Carl. I'm listening. Talk dirty to me. Staff, salmonella, E. coli, influenza. Wait, not that kind of dirty. Do you realize you just took me to the toilet and kept wiping in between tweets? No wonder one in six phones contain fecal matter. Gross. Whatever your hands touch, I touch. I'm covered in filth. It's enough to make both of us sick. Please, can you get me a phone soap? Phone soap? Phone soap safely kills 99.99% of all those germs with clinically proven UV light. It won't damage my screen like liquids or chemicals. Good, because you're all I've got. That's so sweet, Carl. Phone soap is trusted and used by healthcare professionals and hospitals. It fits phones of all sizes. Phone soap makes the perfect holiday gift. Go to phonesoap.com, use code TOM to save 20% off and receive free shipping. That's phonesoap.com, use code TOM. Go to phonesoap.com and use code THOM to save 20% off today.